Yeah, I always think it's weird to talk to people out in the lobby and have this thing sitting around my face. So I just kind of throw it off, and then here, I'm not even ready. So, um, hey, we're so glad to have you hanging out with us today. If you're a first-time guest with us at Stone Point, we're glad uh, that you're here. And uh, we look forward to getting to know you. Uh, as I mentioned, probably on both campuses, we want to put a face with a name and would certainly love to help you get plugged in in some way. Um, for those of you that are traveling uh, on spring break, uh, coming and going, uh, hey, we are hoping that you're with us online and obviously pray for your safety and for your uh, rest over this time. I want to also welcome our Edgewood campus who's joining us uh, live at this very moment. And so we're glad to have them as well. If you've got your Bibles, turn with me to Romans chapter 9. Uh, today we're going to cover about 50 verses uh, in about 35 minutes. Um, and so we're going to be we're going to be picking up some steam, uh, but there's only one way to do this, and that's to cover that many verses. And so we're going to dive in. Um, we're going to put all of it in the sermon notes tomorrow afternoon. And so if you would like to be a part of that, and you're not already, you can simply go to stonepointchurch.com/news. You can sign up for that. It'll be in your inbox tomorrow evening about five o'clock, and you'll have all the notes that we go through, even if you can't keep up with them today. Um, in Romans chapter nine. Um, you've got an incredible text that Paul somehow kind of tucks in between chapter 8 and, and chapter 12. I think the way that you flow out of chapter 8, knowing there's nothing that can separate us from the love of Christ, and then really moving into chapter 12, just knowing that we um, are to be set apart and, and uh, to be ultimately um, just vessels of use for Christ. Uh, there's, there's these Three, ver uh, three chapters kind of tucked in, chapters 9, 10, and 11, um, that are, are very important and crucial, but can all, almost seem like, like, why are they here? Uh, but I think they're very useful. And today we're going to dive in to chapter 9. But in order to do so, what I want you to do, if you have your Bible turned to, to Romans chapter 9, will you flip over just a couple of chapters to also chapter 11? In chapter 11, we're going to look at verse 25 and then 33 through 36. I think it will give us some context and kind of help us set up to what Paul is trying to accomplish in these handful of chapters. In verse 25 of Romans 11, it says, Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery. Brothers, a partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. If you continue to read in chapter 11, I think Paul outlines and explains a little bit more of that. We'll do that in coming weeks. But what is important as you get to the, the close of that chapter is verses 33 through 36, where Paul says, Oh, the depths of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. Verse 34, Paul asks the question, hey, who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Verse 35, who's given a gift to him that he might be repaid? Verse 36, Paul makes a statement, for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. So at the end of Romans chapter 11, as before Paul moves into Romans chapter 12 about us being a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to the Lord, um, Paul says, hey, look, we need to be careful that we don't try to be wise in our own sight. He goes, there are things that God is doing in the present age that are beyond your comprehension. He goes, they, they are beyond the unsearchable and inscrutable ways of God, which I think Isaiah 55 gives us a clear picture that God's ways are not his way, are, are not our ways, that his thoughts are beyond our thoughts. And as we kind of dive into this text today, I just want to give you a humble confession that there are things in this text that I don't 
completely understand. There are things in our Bible that even though I might have a strong opinion on and you might have a strong opinion on, that at the end of the day, we could argue until we see God face to face and we, we could both be wrong. At the end of the day, I think the key is, is to seek to understand the text the best way we know how. As I walk through Romans 11, the context of Romans 11, but also Romans 9, the context of Romans 9 for me comes from verse 25, that a partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And so because I, I view the Bible in that lens, I, I'm going to teach Romans 9 in many ways that, that lens. And I'll come back and explain it and wrap it up with a bow tie. But what I am going to say is if you're here with us and we're diving into Romans chapter 9, um, you're going to have to really pay careful attention as we walk through this text. And may the Lord give us wisdom and may he give us grace. May he, may he give us compassion for one another as we discover this text. And so if you don't mind, let's just pray together and um, more than anything, ask that God would give us Wisdom, clarity, compassion uh, for his word, for one another. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I thank you for this text. God, you and I know how much time has been spent on it. Lord, you and I know how much pain um, it has taken even to work through this text. Um, Lord, you, you are the one who gives clarity, and I pray that you are the one who gives truth. But Lord, more than that, I pray that you would use me just as a humble vessel, um, and, and I pray, Lord, that you would help us to see clearly that your ways are unsearchable and inscrutable. Lord, that I cannot rightly know and discern the mind of God. Lord, I desire to. Lord, I think that's true for my friends today. And I pray that you would help us to seek to learn more about your word, help us to discover things that we don't know. But Lord, more than anything, just also remind us that there is a day in which the things we don't know will, will, will be revealed to us. And while we see now in a mirror dimly lit, one day we'll see all things with clarity and we'll see our King face to face. Lord, until then, will you give us grace? Will you give us compassion? Lord, as we seek to understand, will you help us to realize that we don't always see the things in the word the same? And I pray that you would help us to know what's essential and what's non-essential as we discover these things. In Jesus' name, amen. In Romans chapter 9, uh, based off of uh, what we've seen, uh, that we don't know the mind of the Lord, let's just walk through um, what Paul is writing to the church of Rome. In Romans chapter 9, Paul says this, um, verse 1. He says, I am speaking the truth in Christ. He says, I'm not lying. My conscience bears witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. Paul says, look, as I write to you these things, um, which after he's talked about that there's nothing that separates us from the love of Christ, he goes, look, I write to you, and he says, and I do so in a way that, that's clear and, and compelling, but he goes, and in my conscience, in the depths of my soul, he goes, I'm, I'm sorrowful, and I've got anguish in, in my heart. And the question is, is for who? Verse 3 tells you. He says, for I could wish that I were myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. So what Paul says, he goes, look, I have great sorrow and I have an unceasing anguish in my soul, in the depths of my spirit for you. He goes, my kinsmen. What he's talking about there is his fellow Israelite, the Jews in that day and time. And he goes, the reason that I have that is because he goes, I have an earnest desire for you to see what I see and know what I know. 
Now, if you know who Paul is, formerly Saul, he was a zealous Jew, one that uh, was of high rank and high regard, and yet had an encounter with Jesus on the road to Damascus. That changed his life. What he's saying, he goes, the change that I've experienced, the ways that I now know God through Christ, he goes, I desire for you. Uh, and he, he goes, my conscience bears witness. The reason he's making an emphasis there is because it's one thing for us to say, oh yeah, I, I want brothers and sisters around the world to be saved. And that's true. We say that, right? Churches pray for that. But there's a difference between praying for somebody to come to salvation and you and I deciding to go to a difficult place in order that others might be saved. And I would say that's the difference that I think Paul is trying to allude to here. There's a lot of us that we pray for missionaries and we give money, but there's very few that in our conscience that we would, we would go to the degree that we would say, I'm willing to do anything that these people might come to know Christ. Where Paul says, in my conscience, I have not only great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, but he goes, I am even willing to be cut off from Christ. He goes, I am willing to go to great lengths that my kinsmen, my fellow Israelite brothers and sisters would come to know the love of God. My kinsmen that are according to the flesh. Now, when Paul writes that in verse 3, I think he's giving you a great picture and a demonstration of Christ. Wasn't it Christ that was willing, Philippians 2, to leave the heavenly places in order to come and identify with us as sinful men, to be tempted in every way, though he never sinned? Wasn't he the one who willingly left his father in order that salvation might come to us? Paul goes, I want to identify with, with Christ. I, I'm willing to be cut off for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen. He goes, I want you to know. And that's really what Paul is writing this about. He goes, I want my fellow brothers to know who Christ is and the depths of his mercy and love. And then he outlines a little bit about the nation. Now, when he outlines about the nation, he's giving some clarity to one, uh, the audience. He's giving also some clarity to the Jew about who they are. But listen, what I want you to understand is that while God obviously sovereignly and and in many ways, elected and appointed this nation, Israel, the very things that you're going to see as attributes about them are not only um, something that a Jew would stand on, but they can also be, in many ways, a stumbling block or a stone that the builder rejects. And I think that's the challenge. So Paul's about to list out a lot of things that Israel would say, look at me. And in many ways, they would, in a braggadocious man or beat their chest and say, this is who we are. I think the regard that Paul is writing from is saying, hey, these very things that you're bragging about are the very things that are going to keep you from seeing who Christ is. And so he tells you, I desire earnestly that my brothers and my sisters and my kinsmen of Israel would come to know Christ. He goes, who, are, who is Israel? What are they? And then he begins in verse 4, they are Israelites. That's his kinsmen. He tells you who his kinsmen are. They're Israelites. Now, the Israelites were a consecrated and a set-apart nation. You see that they were established in Genesis chapter 12 as Abraham left Ur of the Chaldeans. God sovereignly and supernaturally plucked Abraham out as their spiritual father and said, you are going to be a great nation. We'll look at that text here in a few. But what's interesting is he says, you are my people. Now, he says, not only are they Israelites, he goes, and to them belong the adoption. Meaning that they, they were not sons, and now they are sons. They were living in Ur of the Chaldeans. God says, Abram, I'm going to make you into the father. Your sons are going to be my people. 
And ultimately, he establishes a nation and a lineage through Abraham, and they are now regarded as sons. And they were given what? The glory. Now, when it sees, you see the glory, he goes, they were given the supernatural and sovereign presence of God. The glory would refer to God's presence among Israel. We know that God's presence... Uh, was a, a cloud by day and fire by night from, for, for Moses and the Israelites coming out of Egypt. We know eventually it was the Shekinah glory of God that resided in the tabernacle and eventually the temple. We know that it was God's presence among the people. And he goes, Israel, they didn't just get sonship and adoption, but they got the glory. They also got the covenants, the covenants given to Mo uh, Moses on Sinai. It was the Ten Commandments um, etched in stone. It was God's character etched before them, eventually given in pen and ink. It was the very thing that would set them apart from every other nation. It was the framework of law and civilization. And that was given to Israel. So Israel was, was regarded not only to have the glory of God, but also the covenants. The, the, um, I'm sorry, the, the, they were given the glory of God, the covenants, which were the solemn oaths to Abraham, Isaac, Moses, but also the law at Sinai. I got ahead of myself, I'm sorry. So the covenants were just the solemn oaths that were given to um, Abraham and to Isaac and to Moses and to David. The law was given at Sinai, which was God's character etched in stone. The foundation of a healthy civilization. They were given worship. Uh, worship was uh, not only the temple, but it was also the priesthood. It, it was a, a sacrificial system that belonged to um, Israel. They were given the promises. What were the promises? It was the fulfillment of God's oath that he would keep his word in the covenants, that he would never break his covenant promises, that he would always do and he would always be true to what he said. He says in verse 5, to them, meaning Israel, belong the patriarchs. So he goes, you look back across the, the lineage of Israel, and he goes, and you see the names of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. You, you see the likes of Joseph and eventually Moses, and you see David. You see the lineage of who Israel belongs to. He says, and it was from their race, from these patriarchs, that according to the flesh is the Christ. It is from them that God, who is overall blessed forever. And he says, amen. So he goes, I want you to realize that, that these people, Israel, he goes, they were regarded as sons. They were regarded as a people who were consecrated, set apart. They were regarded as a chosen race. They were a royal people. They were different. They were to be consecrated and set apart. And it is from this race that Christ came. But look at verse six, but, and there's a but that you could circle because it's, it's an important emphasis. And the emphasis is, but it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. Now what God is going to do through the Holy Spirit and his word as he uses Paul um, as a messenger to the church of Rome, he is basically saying, look, you can be an Israelite, but just because you're an Israelite doesn't necessarily mean that the word of God has failed. And he says, and the reason why is because of the latter part of verse 6, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. So he goes, just because you're an Israelite doesn't necessarily mean that, that, you, are, that you are etched in stone to be a part of God's future kingdom doesn't necessarily mean that salvation's coming to your house just because you're an Israelite. And then what he's going to do is he's going to give three examples. 
The first example is he's going to say in verse 7, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He goes on in verse 8 and he says, this means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said, about this time next year, I will return and Sarah shall have a son. And here's here's what he's talking about. He is saying this in Genesis chapter 12, Abraham was called out of Ur of the Chaldeans and Abraham was given a promise and the promise was you're going to be the father of a great nation. And as you're a father of the great nation, he goes, you need to know that I'm I'm going to bless you. I'm going to keep you. You're going to have descendants. You see that outlined in Genesis 15 and 17. But he goes, I'm also going to not only make a great nation of you because I'm going to bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you. Now, what's interesting about all of this, this promise, is that as God is going to establish a nation, Abraham and Sarah, his wife, are looking around and saying, well, how's that going to come to pass? Because Abraham and Sarah didn't have children. And so in Genesis chapter 16, Sarah, after being barren for many, many years, decided that she would come up with a plan. She says to her husband, Abram, hey, we can't have children and we're barren and we're growing old in years. Hey, why don't you go and why don't you lay uh, with our maidservant, Hagar? Sounds like a great plan, right? Um, and so Abram goes, okay. So the scripture says in Genesis chapter 16 that he takes Hagar as his wife, goes in and lays with her. She conceives and bears him a son. And Abraham's first son is named Ishmael. Now, what's interesting is you're not going to see for another really handful of chapters that there's going to be another son that's eventually born. But right now there's contention in the house because you've got, the, you've got two Supposed wives. You've got a wife of Sarah, who is the legitimate wife, and then you've got Hagar, the maidservant, who has now had a son named Ishmael. As Ishmael grows up in years, Sarah and Hagar butt heads. Not only do they butt heads, but there's contention in the home. Eventually, God says, Hey, listen, what you did was wrong. You took matters in your own hand. The son of the promise is actually going to come from your wife in her barren years. And eventually, Sarah, in her barrenness, would eventually have a son supernaturally and sovereignly. God would bring forth a son and his name would be Isaac. Now, what's interesting is, is that even though Isaac was born, God constituted him as the son of the promise. You still had Ishmael, who was the son of disobedience. Now, look, just so you understand and know, the Arab clash that's happening between Israel today And the Arab nations today is not a new thing. It's been happening for thousands of years. When did it begin? It began back in Genesis chapter 15 when Abraham decided he would take matters in his own hands based off of the uh, suggestion of his wife. And so his wife goes, hey, go and, and take her. And look, ever since you've had contention and you've had headbutting, and you've had challenges. Why? Because Abraham and Ishmael could be regarded as one set of the family, and Abraham and Isaac could be regarded as another set. So here's the question. What do you and I and the Muslim have in common? All of us would claim that that Abraham is your father. So what are we arguing about now? Which one's the son of the promise? Is it the older or is it the younger? For us as believers in Christ, we would say, no, look, the lineage of Christ comes from Israel. That's what Paul's point was. But there are others who would say, well, no, 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 it's not Israel. It's, it's got to be Hagar and Ishmael because he did become great. And God did bless him in many, many ways. 
ultimately as a nation of destruction, but he would become the father of, of really the Arab nations. Now, the reason that I share all of that is simply because what Paul is writing here in verse 8 is, hey, look, not all children of the flesh who are children are, are children of God, but only the children of the promise. And so Paul gives the example. Listen, you can go back to Abraham, but ultimately the way that salvation comes to people has to come through the promise. And he says it's through the means of Isaac, which most Jews would agree with. No problem. But he gives another illustration in verse 10. Look what he does. He says, and not only so, but he goes, also Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac. So you see the lineage goes to Isaac. But look at verse seven, uh, verse 11. Though they, there were twins, were not born and had done nothing either good or bad in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. She was told the older will serve the younger. Verse 13. As it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I hated. So he gives you this family example where it's personal. He goes, look, it's either Ishmael or it's the son of the promise, Isaac. But he goes, listen, can God also in his foreknowledge and in his sovereignty, can he also do whatever he would like when it regards Rebecca and her twins? And he says, yes, absolutely. What's interesting is, is verse 11, it says, in verse 11, and this decision was when they were not, what? Even born yet, because neither had done good or bad. So can God sovereignly in his purposes do what he wants before a person's born? The answer is absolutely. Why? Because God's purposes in this case nationally have nothing to do with the merit of either these two twins, Jacob or Esau. Now, what's interesting is, is that Jacob and Esau were the two twins regarded in verse 11. What's interesting, though, is that in, before either of these children were born, whether Jacob or Esau, Rebekah was told, verse 12, that the older will serve the younger. Now, the question is, how did that pan out? How did, that, how did it all come to fruition? Well, verse 13, God sovereignly chose Jacob, the one he loved, and said, I'm going to set apart Esau, I hated. Now, the words I hated, you might go, well, that's really challenging. Really, the best rendering of that is that it's Jacob that God loved, and it is Esau, which he loved less. That's the best rendering of the text. But what's interesting is, is before any of these things came to be, God sovereignly had selected the lineage of Jacob and Esau. Now, Jacob continues the lineage of the Israelite nation. You might know this, and you might not. But Esau would become the father of the Edomites. The Edomites would actually be the challenge for Israel for years to come. Matter of fact, there was actually a king. His name was Herod who wanted to kill all the, 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 two, the two-year-olds and under. Do you know what Herod was? An Edomite. So listen, when you read your Old Testament and your Bible, it all comes together. It's not like, oh, hey, this is just happenstance. No, this is God sovereignly appointing things. And ultimately, it was a nation here in the context in which he says, look, I, I've made a decision. I've made a decision on how I'm going to bring about Israel. I've brought in his sovereignty, he's brought about the decision on who he's going to bless, Isaac over Ishmael. And in this case, it was a national decision. Jacob is going to be the lineage of Israel and Esau is not. Now, as God sovereignly chooses all that, Paul then asks the question in verse 14. Just also, if you want to read, just a side note, you want to read about the Edomites, you can do that in uh, Genesis 36. But in verse 14, Paul asks the question, well, what shall we say then? Is there 
Is there injustice on God's part? And he goes, by no means. So the idea that this Paul's asking the, the people in Israel, he goes, is God wrong to choose Isaac over Ishmael? Is God wrong in that? Hey, is God wrong to choose Jacob over Esau? Can, can, you, can you make, a, 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 he's, he's asking the question, can you make a credible argument against that? He then goes on and he gives you another example in verse 15. He goes, For he who says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I'll have compassion. Now, the reason that he's saying this is because here was the Jewish thought. The Jew's thought was simply this is because I'm a Jew, and because I'm born of the lineage of Isaac and Jacob, I'm automatically grafted in. Because I have national descent. Because I have a family heritage, I'm I'm the son of the promise. And so a Jew would walk around and they would have pride and they would have a, a haughty spirit and oftentimes a puffed out chest. And the reason why is because they say, we are the descendants of God. We are the chosen people. Oh, we're not Philistines. Oh, we're not Edomites. Oh, thank God we're not Samaritans. And they could walk around with this aura or this expectation that because I was a Jew, because I was circumcised on the eighth day, that I'm automatically in. And Paul is saying, listen, that's not how it works. Can God sovereignly in his purposes set apart someone in Israel, even though they were descendant of of Isaac? He goes, absolutely. Could God choose to, to disregard one? Absolutely. Could God choose to disregard Judas if he wanted to? Yes, he could. Can God, could God, can God do some of those things? That's the question. And if God chooses to do something like that based off of Ishmael or Isaac or Jacob or Esau, then is he wrong? And who can argue that? And really the question that you have to ask yourself is when you read through the text, and this is where I wrestle the most, is what attributes of God will I allow him to put on? Okay, so is God sovereign? Yes, okay, church, so we would say yes. Is God omniscient, meaning he knows all things? Is he omnipotent, all-powerful? Omnipresent means he's everywhere. He's just, which means every decision he makes, whether we can understand the heights or the depths, that he's perfectly just and right in it. You agree with that? He's righteous. So even when it doesn't make sense, like we go, he's not only just in doing so, but he's also right in doing so. You would agree with that? No, are you shaking your head? Yes? Okay, is God free? God's free to do what he wants, whether you like it or not. Because that's where we struggle. And that's where the Jews struggled. And that's really where Paul's kind of beginning to strike the arrow. He goes, yeah, you love the righteousness of God. Love the holiness of God, the justice, the perfection, all these things. But can we let him be free? Can we let him be free to raise up a Jacob over an Esau? Can we, can we let him be free in those areas? And that's the challenge. Friends, that's the biggest challenge that I wrestle with. God, how free are you? How free are you not? And, and that's just a wrestle that you and I are going to have to continually work on on this side of heaven. But that's where Paul's going to hone in a little bit more. Verse 16. So he says, So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Really what he's saying is, he goes, look, anybody's salvation, including a Jew, 
is not based off of our merit, but simply off of God's mercy. Okay, So our salvation is based off the mercy of God and the kindness of God, not our merit. Now, here's why I say that. In order for us to understand this text, there's a few things we have to agree on. The first one is the condition of you and I. Romans chapter 3, Paul makes a point in saying in verse 10, there is not one that is righteous, not even one. You agree with that? He tells us in Romans chapter 3, verse 23, that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We agree with that. That means that in our human nature, our hearts are deceitful. Jeremiah 17, 9, they're sick, that we're desperately in trouble, that we are as aliens, orphans, estranged in darkness. That's who we are when we're born. Now, if you can agree with that text, it means that when Paul writes in Colossians that we are children of disobedience, then that just kind of fits naturally with who we are. But then we can also agree that in Romans chapter 6, Paul makes it clear to the church of Rome that because we are sinners and because we are children of disobedience, that we all deserve death, that the wages of sin is death. Now, the question is, is do you agree with that? That what you and I deserve from a holy, just, righteous, all-powerful, omniscient, omnipresent God is to be separated from him forever. So my next question is this. Would you agree that anything that's merciful, that will allow you to be reconnected with a heavenly father who should, in his justice, remove you from his presence forever, anything other than that is good? Because do you understand that when we approach God and we approach him in his holiness and ultimately in his freedom, that one of the things we oftentimes do is tie conditions to him. But if you really understand the Bible and the gospel at all, the gospel simply helps you realize that not only am I an orphan, an alien, and a stranger, not only am I a sinner, but the only thing I deserve is God's judgment. That's it. That's all you and I deserve. We deserve nothing more. So when you and I come to God and we think, well, God, you should bless my family. God, I can't believe that you would take this job from me. God, I can't believe that you would take a family member from me. And in some ways, we shake our fists. The question you have to ask yourself, did you you deserve anything to begin with? What did you and I deserve? Wrath, destruction, condemnation. That's it. So anything beyond wrath, condemnation, destruction is a good day. So to experience, To understand grace and compassion is an amazing thing. And that's Paul's point here. He then goes on and he goes, listen, not only is he free to to choose Jacob over Esau, but the question is, is one one of the things I question all the time is how in the world did God choose either one of them? They were both corrupt. They were both like, how in the world could God use any of them? How can God use any of us? That's the question. God, how would, you, how would you use any of us anyway? And here's the deal. Because God is sovereign, he can use us however he'd like. Verse 17, he gives another example. So he goes, For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up. Pharaoh, the leader in, in all of Egypt, God says, I raised you up. Now why would God raise him up? Now we see that Pharaoh hardened his heart towards God and eventually God gave a full and complete hardening of Pharaoh. But the reason he raised him up, Paul gives us the answer here in the latter part of 17, that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Verse 18, so then he has mercy on whomever he wills and hardens whomever he wills. The question is, do you believe that? Can God use whoever he would want in any place he'd want to bring about mercy whenever he'd like or a hardening whenever he'd like? 
And in the case of Pharaoh, he goes, look, I took Pharaoh to bring about my supernatural and sovereign purposes. So basically, he says, I raised Pharaoh up so I could tear Pharaoh down. And when I tore Pharaoh down, he goes, I set an entire people free. And he goes, and I showed my sovereignty and my power to the world. Can God do that? And you might go, I don't know. I don't know if he can do it. I, I don't know if that's, I don't know if I, I understand this. And, and maybe you wrestle with that. Look, can I just give you a couple of texts? I'm gonna give you an Old Testament text, a New Testament text. Now hang on with me because I'm gonna cover quite a few verses very quickly as we wrap this thing up. In the Old Testament, I want you to take back, I wanna go back to Genesis chapter 12. He calls Abraham out of the Ur of the Chaldeans. I want you to see what he says to him, okay? I've already kind of briefly explained it to you, but I want you to see it in person. Genesis 12, one through three. Here's what he says. Now the Lord said to Abram, this is before his name was Abraham, go to your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I'm gonna show you and I'm gonna make you into a great nation. There's a promise. I'm gonna bless you. I'm gonna make your name great, okay? So he goes, I'm gonna make you into a great nation. I'm gonna bless you. I'm gonna make your name great so that you will be a blessing. So you see all these promises? He goes, and I'm going to bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you, I will curse. Pay attention to that. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So he goes, I'm going to make you into a great nation. You're going to be the father of them. If they rise up against you, I'm going to curse them. If they come alongside of you, I'm going to bless you. But you need to know, Abraham, all the nations, everyone is going to be blessed by you and this particular nation. Those are the promises. Now, what's interesting is if you remember the promises and the covenants that God tied to Israel, we talked about earlier, I want you to see one of the conditions that he gave Moses and the people of Israel in Deuteronomy chapter 30. It was all tied to the things that he said to Abraham. Look at Deuteronomy chapter 30. You're probably not gonna have time to turn there. If you do, hey, you're really good. But in verses 15 through 20, I want you to see what he says um, to the Israelites. Deuteronomy 30, verses 15 and following. He says, See, I have set before you today life and good, death and evil. He says, If you, and he's talking about Israel, obey the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you today by loving the Lord your God, by walking in his ways and by keeping his commandments and his statutes and his rules, then you shall live and multiply. And the Lord your God will bless you in the land that you're entering to take possession of it. Sounds like the, the, the promises that he told Abraham, right? The only thing now is they're tied to conditions. And the conditions are, if you honor me, if you love me, if you make much of me, he goes, I'll make much of you as a nation. But look at the warning in verse 17. But if your heart turns away and you will not hear, but are drawn away to worship other gods and serve them, I declare to you today that you shall surely perish. You shall not live long in the land that you're going over the Jordan to enter and possess. I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore, choose life that you and your offspring may live, loving the Lord your God, obeying his voice and holding fast to him. For he is your life and the length of days that you may dwell in the land that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob to give them. So he goes, listen, you worship me, you keep your land. You bless me, you'll be blessed. But he goes, if you don't regard my words, you don't keep my commands, then he goes, you need to know before heaven and earth, he goes, I'm going to remove you from the land and I'm going to remove my hand of protection and blessing on you. That was conditional. Now, here's what you need to know. Your Old Testament would tell us that Israel began to harden their heart against God. They began to, in many ways, be seduced by other idols and they gave way to the Moabites and the Amorites and the Hittites and so many others. And they found themselves in love with foreign gods and foreign women. And God said, listen, I'm going to remove you. Now listen, 
If you remember the words of Abraham, he said, Abraham, I'm going to bless you and I'm going to bless those who bless you. But what's he going to do to those who come against them? He says, I'm going to curse them. Now, let me ask you a question. In God's sovereign plan, as he uses Israel, can he judge the ones that he loves? Yes. Matter of fact, he promises to do that. So he's just in doing that, correct? Now, he's going to raise up Daniel chapter 1, the Babylonians, and the Babylonians are going to sweep in, and they are going to exile the Israelites out of their land. Why? Because God is keeping his word. Now, as he does that, you remember Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego and all those friends that were exiled. They were exiled because of the disobedience of a nation. Now, let me ask you a question. If God is sovereign and just, and he told the Israelites and their forefathers that if there's a nation that will bless them, they'll bless, what happens to the nation that he cursed? Is God sovereign and just now to take Babylon, use them to bring about judgment of Israel? But what's he have to do to Babylon now? What's he got to do to them? He's got to judge them. He's got to purge them too. And so in Daniel chapter 5, he tells Babylon and their king, Nebuchadnezzar, you have many, many tekel parson. You have been weighed. You've been count, counted. You've been balanced. And he goes, and you fall short. And there was a handwriting on the wall and the Persians and the Medes came in and they swept the Babylonians out. Why? Because God keeps his word. Is he just in doing that? Can God do what he pleases there? Absolutely. Let me show you a New Testament example in Matthew chapter 20, verses 1 through 16. This is a, an example that Jesus gives uh, as a parable. In Matthew chapter 20, uh, you see the labors in the vineyard. It says, For the kingdom of heaven, in Matthew 20, beginning in verse 1, it says, The kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. And going about a third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And he said to them, hey, you should go into the vineyard too. And whatever's right, I will give you. So they went, going out again about the sixth hour. And then again, the ninth hour, he did the same. And about the eleventh hour, he went out and he found others standing. He said to them, hey, why do you still stand here idle all day? And they said to him, well, because no one's hired us. And he said to them, well, go into the vineyard too. And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. Now here's the story. They're, they're laborers in the marketplace, and he goes and he hires them. And he starts in the very early morning, and he goes, hey, I'm going to give you a denarius for a full day's wage. They go, yep. They go into the vineyard. And then periodically throughout the day, he goes and he gets others, and he makes an agreement to pay them a denarius throughout the day. Now when it comes to payment time, let's look at it in verse 10. Now, when those who were hired first came, they thought that they would receive more. Uh, I'm sorry, go back to verse 9. And when those hired about the 11th hour came, each of them received a denarius. So he goes to pay them, right? And as he pays them, he gives them a denarius. So the ones that were hired first, verse 10, they thought, well, we're going to receive more. But each of them also received a denarius. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, Hey, wait a second. The last only works an hour, and you've made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. But then he replied to them, Friend, I'm doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give the last worker as I give to you. Verse 15. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to what? To me. Or do you begrudge my generosity? So the last will be first and the first will be last. So he goes, listen, is he right to pay what he wants? He made an agreement. He's kept his word. It's a picture of what 
our God is. It's a picture of his faithfulness to keep his word. Now, if you roll back to to Romans chapter 9, let's pick up at verse 19, and we're going to put a a bow tie on all of it. Here it is. In verse 19, the question that you might ask then would be, well, okay, will you say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? It was like the the laborers in the vineyard. Why are we not getting what? Why, why are we not getting more? Well, what is it saying? You're getting exactly what you agreed to. The question is, it's almost like Job. Who are you to question God? So here it is in God's sovereign purposes. We see here what, what Paul goes on to say. He goes, what is the molder going to say uh, to, what is the molded going to say to its molder? Ask the question, verse 20. Why have you made me like this? Verse 21. Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use? and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for, for, uh, for glory, even us whom he called not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles? Paul asked the question, is the molder or the molded in charge? He goes, surely it's the, mold, the molder. It's the one who forms the clay. He's in charge. So Paul asks the question, is God unjust to raise up Isaac over Ishmael? Is God unjust to raise up Jacob over Esau? Is God unjust to raise up Pharaoh to accomplish his purposes? Is God unjust to judge the Babylonians when they came against his people, but also keep his word against the Babylonians? Is God is, is God unjust in in anything, salvation, if we all deserve death? The answer is no, he's not unjust. And so the point of this is simply this. Here, I believe that he's talking to a nation and he's saying, God is not unjust in using this nation however he would like. And what I personally believe, according to Romans chapter 11, is that a personal hardening is coming to a nation called Israel. Now, Listen, I, I want to just share this as I kind of put a bow tie on it. There are several different schools of thoughts when you come across Romans 9. There are schools of thoughts that most people don't know anything about, but a good portion of those schools of thoughts came out of the Reformation. And, and really the, around the Reformation, one of the schools of thought um, that came along and, and many of the reformers thought uh, was around the idea of covenant theology, which is that at some point the church replaces Israel. Now listen, there are men that are far smarter than me that have those beliefs, and, and I can see that, and I can see the argument for that. And if you want to study, you can. I personally, I, I see it a little differently, and I see it in the sense that what God is doing here in the nation is ultimately to bring about a setting aside and a partial hardening for Israel so that he can graft in a new people, namely the Gentiles. And I think Paul's point to the church in Rome is, is God just to take his own bride, Israel, and set her aside for a time in order to bring about his purposes? And and I would say, yes, he is. Now, the reason I share that with you is this, is that I have brothers and sisters that we would see this a little differently, and we, we live together in great harmony. And the reason why is because it shouldn't be a divisive issue. The fact is, and I would concede to you, I cannot prove my point with 
with absolute clarity. I, I think that, do I think that I'm pretty firm in what I believe? Absolutely. Do I think the context of it is, but are there many other people that I'm friends with that would see it differently, that we can live together in harmony? Yes. I do not think for a moment that this should be as a divisive issue as what's been made in the church. Now, I do think for a moment, I do think that there are ultimately times and, and experiences in our faith as we grow in the greater depths of, of, of really who the Lord is, that there may be times where we'd say, you know what, I don't know that I can sit under this leadership or that leadership based off of what really is going on in my heart. And we, we certainly would concede that, okay? What we would simply say is this, is that we think that's what the text is. I think as elders, we agree. And the difference between, say, a covenant theology would be another one just called dispensationalism. And, and for us as elders, we would land in, in a dispensationalist camp. That's where we would land. And, and here's the deal. Let me explain it to you this way. If, if you happen to land there, I'll just give you an illustration and we'll close with that. If you have, uh, if you have a head coach and you, you draft a, a really awesome quarterback in the first round of the draft, and you look at him, he's got the bronze, he's got the brains, he's got the arm, he's got the intellect, he's got everything you want. And you see that he is the future of the franchise. And you see for a while, there's a handful of years that you see success, but then eventually that success goes to that quarterback's head, and eventually the quarterback begins to do what he wants to do, the way he wants to do it. Is the head coach... Is he right in the organization to eventually say, I'm going to sit you on the bench because I don't like your brains and your bronze and I don't need your arm because your intellect gets in the way of all of it? Is the head coach, is he just in sitting that guy on the bench? Now, let me ask you a question. Can the head coach then take a, another group of quarterbacks and then he takes one that's a little scrawnier and goes, you know what, I'm going to use you and he's coachable, and he's teachable. He can't run out of sight. He doesn't throw every ball that the other one can throw. But at the end of the day, he gets things done, and the team still finds success. Is a coach right to take the stud in the organization and sit him on the bench if the organization can, can still have a far-surpassing reach with a, a kind of a scrub quarterback? That's my view of the text. My view is that God is sovereign and that he can take Israel, his bride, his love. And I believe in this season, for me personally, Romans 11, there's a partial hardening that's happened in Israel. And he's put his bride on the bench, the quarterback. And he goes, and listen, I'm going to graft in and I'm going to use another people and I'm going to accomplish my pur pur purposes in the church age. And I believe he raised up the Gentiles to do that. I believe we're living in that age. Now, I think Romans 11, if you read it, I think it shows you too that in this age, God is also sovereign to use us as Gentiles to make his bride, Israel, jealous to bring about his ultimate and sovereign purposes in the end. I believe that's what's in play here. Now, there's a lot of us in here that were like, I'm so lost. And listen, if you're lost, look at me. Your Savior died so that you would have a glimpse into these things. The Word of God is rich and it's meaningful. Not so that we could argue about or be divided on, but so that we would see the glorious grace of God, that we would see His sovereign purpose, and ultimately we would see Him bringing about His salvation as He appointed to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12 that all the nations of the earth would be blessed. Are there all nations that have been blessed? Many, 
Have they all? I don't know that they all have yet, because if they have, then probably the return of Christ has happened. So there are many nations that have not heard the name of Jesus, and they need to. Who's going to accomplish that purpose? I believe it's us. And so I believe in many ways, while we discover the deep riches of God's word, let's not argue about them, because there's too many people still in God's sovereign purpose and plan that he wants to bring about salvation to any of those, Romans 10, that would believe in their heart and confess with their mouth. And so let's see that done, and let's be a part of it. Let's give grace when we don't actually know. And friends, if you haven't studied at the lengths and the depths and the time that others have studied this issue, hey, keep your mouth closed. And the reason I say that is because it has been with great agony for weeks and months that I have studied this text to do its justice and to give it with grace and with agony and tears. I implored to my community, I don't want to preach this one. Because of the divisiveness that happens in local churches and the things that have been said. Friends, get to know God's word. Discover it for yourself. Form solid basis, but then give grace. Be humble. Isn't that what God's called us to do? And I pray that's what you would get. That if God's using us in this day and age, that we would be the light of the world. That we'd be a city on the hill. Not to be dogmatic. Not to be rude or self-seeking but to exude love and compassion, the grace and the kindness of God when we don't know for sure. And friends, there are a lot of ways I'm dogmatic. And there are a lot of things that I can make a stupid argument over something I really can't prove. Ask my wife. (laughs) But at the end of the day, friends, may we just be kind and may we exercise the loving, compassion, and kindness of our Savior Jesus when we just don't know for sure. Make sense? And may it compel you to study your Bible more and more. If you're lost today, may God use his spirit to teach you more truth. And it's 1158 and I've gone way too long. And so let me close part of it, right? So if you're complaining in your spirit, um, may the Lord forgive you, okay? (laughs) Father in heaven, we love you and thank you for this morning. God, thank you for my friends. God, thank you for this text. God, you know my heart. You know where I've wrestled and struggled in it. You know for months the heartache and even the sickness that it's caused me, the pain. It's such a difficult text. I pray, Lord, that I've done it some justice. Lord, I pray most of all that my friends here would just know that you are sovereign and you are holy and and you are just and you are free to do as you please. And there are so many examples in the scripture that you are free to do whatever you'd like. And so, Lord, I pray that we we would just exude grace and compassion and understanding and things that we Don't understand, Lord, how unsearchable are your ways. Lord, how inscrutable are your ways and unsearchable are your judgments. Lord, I don't know the mind of the Lord, but I want to. I know I can't be your counselor, so may you give us counsel. Lord, teach us all things, and to you be the glory forever and ever.